the lesson this week is called New Covenant Sanctuary. And in the pamphlet, it describes the week at a glance. Why did God want the Israelites to build a sanctuary? What does the sanctuary teach us about Christ as our substitute? And what does Jesus do in heaven as our representative? I don't think we need to do a whole lot with those questions. I think that the... the <laughs> I just love that. That would have been a great introduction to the podcast. We should work with that. You know how sometimes shows have that, that little blooper clip that they'll put right before the introduction plays? Put it there. What I was going to say is the name of the lesson is called New Covenant Sanctuary. And the title in my ESV of Hebrews 8 is Jesus, High Priest of a Better Covenant. And I was actually getting to saying, I think that that idea of Jesus being High Priest of a Better Covenant is both a more fruitful conversation and a closer link to the theme of this quarter, which is the covenant. Hello and welcome back to our discussion. It's great to have you here with us as we look at um, a bit more of the concept of, of God's covenants with his people at various times and places. Another fun uh, sort of subtopic that we're looking at this week. My name's Cameron. Very glad to be here recording. Yeah, g'day. Ken here. Great to be with you again. Hi, it's Luke. Still here. And I'm Lachlan. And I hope that at least our listeners had a better week than I did. I began it by crashing my car this week. And uh, I've had a week of sorting out insurances and everything. And the the silver lining to the whole episode has been that uh, the person whose car I wrecked uh, has been completely unreasonably gracious and kind throughout the whole proceeding. So that um, it's nice that they're nice people. And Cam, when you rang me in the week and told me that uh, uh, you'd crashed your car, uh, it actually made the concern that I had at the start of the week look a little less serious, but I found some damage that I'd caused on the aeroplane that I'm building, and I'm not exactly sure how to fix it. It's not terminal, uh, but it's a complication that I didn't want. Um, anyway, it was my own care- carelessness that caused it, but um, now I've got to work out how to fix it. Terminal is not a word that people like to hear in relation to aeroplanes. Uh <laughs> better in the context of something that's still being built than something that's currently in the air though. true yeah yeah but but uh what we discover in this reading this week is is that uh is a description of of you know we've been so enthusiastically learning about the covenants god god has made and the passage we're going to read seems to regard some of these covenants as fairly ineffectual uh uh Damaged, as it were, Ken, like your aeroplane, hmm. needing repair, like my car. Um, and I'm not sure how this ties in with all the enthusiasm we've brought to the topic of the last few weeks. So we should dive in. And we're going to start reading from Hebrews 8. Now, we'll skip some verses in the middle because a half of Hebrews 8 is a direct quotation of the passage we read last week in our last week's episode on Jeremiah 31. So we won't read those parts. We'll read uh, up to verse 8 and then skip to 13. Mm -hmm. And I'll start us off. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of, of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. 
Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says. And then there's the passage quoted from Jeremiah 31. And verse 13, finishing off this passage, says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Yes, do you know what it says in the message, which is a paraphrase, not a, not a translation, but the, the phrase used there is uh, by coming up with a new plan, a new covenant between God and his people, God put the old plan on the shelf and there it stays gathering dust. <laughs> oh. uh, paraphrase or not, that's a very effective picture. Hmm. It is. That's the yeah. message at its best. Mm. Well, I don't agree because I seem to remember that when God made these covenants, he described them as everlasting covenants. Didn't he use the word everlasting in the context of uh, the Abrahamic covenant? I Probably. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the themes that the lesson tried to bring out was that really the old one and the new one are the same. But... Uh, uh, it seems there is significant difference because the new one is said to be superior. Um, so how can they be the same if one is better than the other? It would not, just to come back to my constant harping theme of many episodes, but last week in particular, it could not possibly be the work of a perfect God if it was not an improvement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking in my concordance, and it says uh, in Genesis 7:17, an everlasting covenant between me and you. In 17:8, an everlast the land will be an everlasting possession. 17:13, uh, in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant, and an everlasting covenant for his descendants, and an everlasting possession to your descendants of the land. And Numbers 18:19, oh, I'm looking in a con- in a concordance so it's out of context but numbers 18 19 describes uh, an everlasting covenant of salt maybe that's the imperfect one well, there you i better go. look it up you guys continue the discussion i'll find out if there's anything useful in numbers 18 19 you might call the everlasting covenant of salt the everlasting covenant of hypertension the immediate thing thought that comes to mind is just because something is everlasting doesn't mean you can't replace it with something better well and indeed it it, it might be that maybe it continues that's... it's just that uh, there's another one as well. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, one. there's... Maybe that's why the message translates it as the old one's yeah. on the shelf gathering You can get dust. it down if you need it. It's it's everlasting in that sense, but it's it's lost its primary utility. It's interesting, though, Cam, you, you went back looking in your concordance and you were drawing our attention. I think most of those verses you cited were were verses from when God is making his covenant with Abraham or with Isaac in the actual family, a story of Abraham and his direct family. 
But in the passage here in Hebrews 8, and in the way that it quotes from Jeremiah 31, it's quite explicit. It says it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And so that it's drawing particular attention to the covenant. We did look at this, remember? The, the Israelites and Moses went up Mount Sinai. And I think the reason that it's drawing this comparison so directly, here in Hebrews 8, it's talking about Jesus being our high priest. And of course, although there were priests, even Abraham encountered that priest, King Melchizedek, it can't have been priests in the same uh, equivalent or, or exactly the same ceremonial um, format that we have once the Exodus takes place, because otherwise God wouldn't have needed to give them all the instructions about how that, that ceremony and how that sanctuary and how that priesthood kind of worked. So there is something a little different that enters the covenant at the point of the Exodus, and it seems that it in particular is is being put on the shelf, so to speak, by the ministry, incarnation, death of Jesus. Clearly, that was a profound statement. The, the silence is not disagreement. No. 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 In my case, it's inattention because I'm deep, deep in a Wikipedia article on the covenant of salt. Um, <laughs> I think well, Cam's gone for the evening. <laughs> I have a feeling. Sorry. I have a feeling that the that the covenant of salt was also not so prominently on the mind of the author of Hebrews. No, but you know that it appears twice. And one is in Numbers when it describes bringing meat offerings. And one of them is the covenant, God's covenant with the Davidic kings of Israel is also described as a covenant of salt. And one trans, one, one um, interpretation of this is that a covenant of salt most likely means the covenant is a perpetual covenant because salt was used as a preservative. Yeah, preserving. So it's an everlasting covenant of hmm. salt is just a way of saying it's everlasting and it will last, hmm. Hmm. Um, perhaps. But, right. but that, that doesn't help us because it still seems to draw some tension with the passage in, in Hebrews. Well, I, I don't know. That. Um, I think Lachlan's, well, I think that the, the message's imagery and, and what Lachlan said about it uh, makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Something can be superseded without ceasing to be. There's something interesting here that I want to throw in, and it's it's not quite as connected to covenant, but it is connected to the the high priest, perhaps the better covenant, perhaps the better ministry, and the idea of offerings, which, Cam, you did just mention in the context of this salt covenant. So I, was, I learned something this week. Um, we often picture the Old Testament sanctuary and sacrificial and offering system being that someone would confess their sins over the animal and then the animal would be sacrificed as if the animal was somehow cleansing them from their sins but the theologian that i that i encountered um not face to face but but through a podcast was pointing out that there is in fact only one particular ceremony where the sins of the people are transferred onto an animal and that's the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement ceremony. And that animal is the, the one animal sacrificed. in the whole system that is not sacrificed. It's not offered as an offering. And so it really caused me to go back and think a little bit about what, what are we picturing happens? Because it's an opportunity here, I think, to point out one of the reasons why Jesus and his ministry supersedes the the sanctuary and the priesthood and the high priest and all of this system 
is because in Jesus, all of it is contained in a single entity, a single being. Jesus is the high priest here in Hebrews 8, but Jesus is also the sacrificial lamb. And Jesus is also on the cross that entity which takes away the sin of the world, which is like the scapegoat leaving the camp and taking the sins of the people away that have been that have been um, confessed. And so the, there is a real sense, I think, in which some of the games we like to play, which is to try and find what the different elements of the Old Testament sanctuary system represent. Some of those games are a little bit pointless because it's like the old, the old trope of, of, you know, children's stories in Sabbath school or Sabbath school stories. The answer to any question of what does this element of the sanctuary system point to, it's always Jesus. Well, mm. I think we've, um, we've, we've solved that problem very nicely. Thank you for joining us today. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see you again next week. <laughs> but that, that can't be because we haven't taken our allotted time. Uh, <laughs> We've been trying to make it short. Surely there's a little bit of pushback. On, 17 minutes. Perfect. <laughs> why, is, why is it better? Why is it a, a better covenant? I, your, your description is saying it's a better covenant. Um, it, it's more, it makes an, a more efficient use of symbols. Well, it can, it, it, that, that, that may be right, but there's, there's, there's a clear answer in the text. Um, uh, to that question, at least in part, and I think it goes in, th that answer has itself two parts to it. So it's in verse 6. Um, uh, the ministry of Jesus has received, this is in the NIV, is a superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Um, mm. And it is founded on better promises. So it, it yes. has a better foundation in that it's, it is superior because it's founded on better promises. Now, it would be interesting to think what those better promises might be. And then we go to verse 7. It says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first mm. covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But, and this is interesting, verse 8, God found fault with the people. And then if you go and see what the fault was in verse 9 there in the quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, um, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and turned away from them, declares the Lord. So the covenant's founded on, is founded on better promises, which makes it more effective because it overcomes the fault that was found with the people, that is their lack of faithfulness. Um, and what is the better promise? Uh, the better promise is that I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Um, so that seems okay. to me to be one mm. of the ways in which this mm. is said to be superior. Yes, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall all know me. Let me rephrase it then. Um, uh, there's two aspects to this. One is that this passage suggests that there was something wrong with the Old Covenant. God already knew that man's every inclination was evil back in the flood story. Uh, it, it, it cannot be um, that God was taken completely by surprise uh, when he discovered that something was wrong with the new covenant. And then uh, something was wrong with the old covenant. And then this new covenant is better because it will be written on our hearts and the law will be put in our minds, which, which ought to suggest that people who operate under the new covenant have some sort of measurable difference in them. And uh, I think that I, I, maybe I'm in error in this, but just from my own personal experience, 
I don't see that I'm more likely, or I don't see that I'm less likely to do the wrong thing than the ancient Israelites were. Like, as in, I'm just as likely to be stubborn or foolish or distracted when I drive a car, or in uh, that's perhaps not a very high moral fault, but um, uh, you know, uh, w- the new covenant sounds really good if it happens that way. But does it? Is it empirically it? more effective? Well, Cam, I would, I would question. I, I agree with all of that, and I think you you drive to the very heart of it and arrive at the difficult question that's worth pondering. But I would question one small assumption you make, which is that having the law in our minds and and written on our hearts uh, necessarily translates automatically to different behavior in every instance or perfect behavior um, or, or, or indeed, you know, what, what we think of as, as, uh, being unsinful, you know, uh, the the removal of sin, um, and I I instead look more towards verse twelve when I think about what it means for the law to be in the minds and written on the hearts. Um, and verse twelve is where it says, and it's quoting again from Jeremiah, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So even within this passage, it's not claiming that what God will do in verse ten in the new covenant is going to remove people's sins from them immediately here and now it is it is maybe talking about uh the process of salvation uh it seems to me also um that i am not the first person to uh have these questions romans is all about the fact that the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant um, it talks about the the how ineffectual God's law was to bring about the purpose for which it was designed, um, and and Christ is upheld as something much new and much better in the book. But Paul presumably operated under the new covenant himself, or regarded himself to do so. And he says, I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting now, isn't it? Cam, just observe there the correlation. He says in Hebrews 8, Jeremiah said, uh, as quoted in Hebrews 8, I will put my laws in their minds. Notice what Paul says here. I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind um, uh, and uh, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So, and, and then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Uh, so the law is in his mind. God has written it in his mind. In some ways, it almost sounds, the concept that you're talking about, Ken, reminds me of the knowledge of good and evil that is mentioned all the way back in Genesis. But here it's being repurposed. We, we, we think of the knowledge of good and evil as something bad because it, ha- it, 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 it was, it was the, the primary element of the fall 
was the knowledge, knowing good and evil. That was the consequence of eating the the fruit uh, of the um, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Funny that. Um, and yet here it's almost as though he's saying, in this new covenant, I will I will make you aware. You will be aware of of your your sinful natures, uh, and you will want to be better. Mm. You you may not always succeed. But you will know what is right and wrong, and and so it's it's almost as though God's sort of come in a loop, mm. all the way back around to the beginning again, where you start it's with endorsing the knowledge of good. And evil. It's it's well, it's repurposing it for for for, for good, you know. It's actually that is so you, you you start with that as 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 the fall, and then all of these covenants are sort of an, an attempt to fix the problem that is caused by humans' knowledge of good and evil, specifically evil, you know, and he tries wiping everyone out um, and he tries giving them a, a, a law and it's not so much you have to understand the law, you just have to follow it. And eventually he arrives back at, okay, well, w- we, we need to hmm. actually use the fact that they have knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is an incomplete thought in my mind, but um, I'm, I'm bringing two things together. Uh, so uh, the what uh, the devil said... Uh, I say the devil. What the serpent said um, uh, was, uh, "You will become like God, knowing good and evil." So that's the way in which you're like God. Um, and then I bring that together with um, verse eleven in Hebrews eight, again quoting from Jeremiah thirty-one: "No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me.'" Now, there's, there's knowledge there. Is there some connection between being like God with the knowledge of good and evil and the knowing God uh, referred mm. to in this passage quoted from Jeremiah? I think, I think there's, there may be some connection. I'm now looking for um, a different passage. Uh, where we are encouraged to be imitators of Christ, be imitators of God, Ephesians five one. Uh, now uh, we are encouraged to be imitators of Christ, uh, be imitators of of God. Therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's a really fascinating idea. Christ knew good and evil in in the sense of experiencing good and evil. Um, you know, you can say you know, you can say I know what that would be like. And we've commented in, I think, a long time ago in one of our early seasons, C.S. Lewis wrote a book of about the problem of pain. And then while his mm. wife was dying of cancer, he wrote a separate book called A Grief Observed. And they're very different in tone. Uh, C.S. Lewis knew pain mm in the second book in a way that he didn't know it in the first book. And and Christ had a knowledge of good and evil that that was first hand experience. And we are encouraged in Ephesians five to be imitators of God. We are we're encouraged to be like God, which as as you pointed out, Luke, or Ken, as you pointed out, um, was one of the that was one of the features of the fall. It's not only that the, the serpent said, Can you refer to the serpent? The serpent said um, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, God says it afterwards. 
when he says mm. we can't let them eat of the tree of life anymore because they've become like us, knowing good and evil. Mm. Uh, so God says that that one of the problems that sort of precipitates out of the the fall event is that humans have become like God. Whereas here we're told to be imitators of God. We are told to be like him uh, and live a life of love like Christ did who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we are to have a knowledge of good and evil uh, in the same way that Christ did, uh, a giving way. Uh, mm. you know, we know what, it, what it's like to be hurt because we are hurt as we try and help other people. That we, that's, Hurt's maybe the wrong word, but we spend our lives in the service of other people. I don't think hurt is too strong. Uh, or, or wrong. It is an element of that knowledge of evil. Uh, it is experiencing it in your body. Yeah. One, one of the proven um, best ways, essentially, to, to develop empathy for others hmm. is to see in them the same pain that you yourself has, has experienced. There, there have been studies on this done. Um, a, a, a lack of empathy is is exhibited when people do not see commonality with the suffering. So road rage is kind of a classic example of that, um, because people get more angry and and they behave worse because they are looking at a car, not a person. So we should all drive mm. drop top. Com- convertibles, Luke, so that our face is clearly visible. <laughs> that that is the takeaway message. Yes, I find something really interesting happening here. You know, as we're getting towards the end of this yeah. quarter, we're obviously shifting our focus fully into the New Testament era. Human followers of God, informed by the self-revelation of God through the being of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and I have all prior to the. To, to the discussions we've had so far this quarter, I have always just simplified it as being the old covenant and the new covenant. But I'm now reading it a little differently. There, there are a range of covenants. We've already explored that. We've discussed it many times. I see Hebrews... <laughs> mm. Mm. It's covenants of salt. Is the covenant of salt the old yeah. one or the medium one? I feel also. like you've got a bit of a fixation, Kat. It's really captured your imagination. Listen... Sprinkle it on your tomato and leave it alone. Yeah, I'll admit, <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. another way to preserve things, and that's with sugar. I want to find out about the covenant of sugar. Sugar! <laughs> but, but, yeah. but what I was saying was that the the I, I'm reading it with a little bit more nuance and a bit more detail. You know, it's not that that much earlier. In, in Hebrews 3, the ESV puts a heading there, Jesus greater than Moses. Right, there's, and there's all talks about the, the priestly system of the tabernacle. There's an actually, in Hebrews 7, there's a really interesting exploration of Melchizedek. So that's just prior. And Melchizedek is different from the priesthood precisely because he comes before the Exodus. And the author of Hebrews seems to kind of say, look, there's a different kind of priest that's that's outside the mosaic the sinai covenant because it pre-existed the sinai covenant and there's all sorts of little lines of logic that are used you know the hebrews were told to pay a tithe to the levites who were the priest 
the priestly tribe. They were the priests mm. in the sanctuary system. And the author of the book of Hebrews goes to the point, goes to detail to point out, hey, but Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And, mm. and that's, that's clearly a tithe to someone other than the Levites. So the, the whole idea is actually bigger than that. You know, this whole, anything that you can think of that makes someone a priest, this Melchizedek person seems to be able to indicate that there is already something bigger and better. And so it's not entirely clear to me that the author of Hebrews is in fact arguing that all previous covenants are up on the shelf gathering dust. The author of Hebrews seems to have a particular fixation on the, the post-Exodus revelation of God and seems to be saying, hey guys, God has just revealed himself a whole lot better than he did at Sinai. And all of your, all of your stories and rituals and systems, all of your sanctuaries and priesthoods, all of your law needs to be reevaluated in the light of the ministry of Jesus. That's what I'm hearing here in Hebrews. That, that, and that's really uh, supported by the reference to Melchizedek. Uh, there's a sense in which he's uh, the author of Hebrews is saying uh, there was this uh, excellent covenant uh, in Melchizedek uh, and there is this excellent covenant through Jesus. Uh, the bit that's in between... <laughs> Uh, the mosaic <laughs> system has not worked. Um. Mm. Well, and I think I think it's worth noting at this point also that Hebrews is a letter to the Hebrews. Mm. Mm. It, there's a target audience here, and Hebrew society um, had become very obsessed with the Exodus covenants. You know, um, I don't know of any. I don't know of any Christian denominations today, Luke, that are obsessed with the Mosaic Covenants and the Ten Commandments. <laughs> oh, it's maybe a cult here and there. Um. <laughs> I insist that that not be cut. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, for the record, I will have it known that I was coughing, not laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's all coughs. <clears throat> <clears throat> Can I um, suggest one other difference? growing out of some of the ideas we've, we've um, explored. And this is not really, I guess, that much of a difference. It's more of a coming into focus because there's hints of it in the earlier covenants. But um, one of the features of the new covenant uh, is if we are to be like God, if he's to write his law on our hearts and our minds, if we're to have a deeper knowledge of him uh, and we're to be imitators of him and if we are his body here on earth, then we are invited to participate in the covenant-making process, but from God's side. Ah. So God's God's uh, we are then His representatives, and in, in the covenant-making process, uh, uh, God is continually being gracious as He is after the flood, even though everyone's evil. And um, and in this new covenant, He says, you know, I will forgive all their sins, and the inference is that there will be sins to forgive, and. If we are invited to be Christ on earth, then we are meant to be going around saying to people, let's build a covenant. I'm going to help you. Uh, uh, I'll forgive you when you do things are wrong. You know, we we are invited to sort of be imitators of God, to, to play the covenant-making process from, mm. from his side. 
and to forgive others. I mean, that is, that is a key element of the new covenant. Do you know what? I think that that is such an important idea, Cam. That is a really strong idea. And it actually leads super nicely into the topic for next week, which is called covenant faith, which is starting to sort of ask the question, how does our life change as we as we live in the covenant? I, I propose we we ponder that and encourage listeners to ponder that and, and pick it up next week to discuss in, in more time than we have available right now. Yeah, that's a good idea. And it's, it's, it's not completely new because God did say to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. Um, mm. God's, God seems to be using these covenants as a mechanism for reaching out to people. And it seems to be part of our job is, is to reach out to other people in their need. And um, I just looking at the time... And I think you're right, Locke. We we can't really deal with that um, in its in its fullness right now. Uh, lots of fun ideas and interesting ideas and challenging ideas. Uh, I found it very enjoyable. I hope you, our listener, have also found it enjoyable. As always, if if you think you, you, you know anyone else, maybe not make listener singular, can. <laughs> yeah, but they're listening to it one at a time. Oh, Maybe they might, they Maybe might be sitting together. And, uh, my parents listen to it together. All right. Well, you, our listeners, um, can be encouraged to, or both of them, Luke. Both. Of them. <laughs> yes, our two <laughs> listeners um, can be encouraged to share the podcast with anyone who they think would find it helpful. And um, you feel free to join us next week as we continue our discussion. <laughs>